their family, the work of grace that you've done there at Centerpoint Bible Church. They have worked hard for 12 years. You're growing them. And uh, there is a, a growing influential ministry there in that Bible church for the Spring Mills area. Would you please continue to do a good work? Help us to know how to come alongside them just right, to know your will, not to get ahead, not to stay behind, but to be right with them in a time of need. Thank you that we are resourced in such a way to be a blessing. And now, Lord, we just send them on their way, asking your blessing on Lowell in a special way of time of leadership, an important time to lead his flock. Please strengthen him, protect him, encourage him, and use him. And now visit us here through your Holy Spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Yep. Yep. Well, how many of you would say that Monday is your favorite day of the week? Sobolski. How many of you would say Friday is my favorite day of the week? Many more hands there. Well, today I thought it was appropriate for us uh, to, to deal with the topic of labor on Labor Day weekend. We're going to have to cover some ground. I hope you'll position your Bibles and your notes nearby um, as we are aware of our picnic coming up here shortly, and we want to have time to change clothes, grab our food, and get down there by 1 o'clock. And yet we want to be encouraged by God's Word this morning. Most of us think that we work pretty hard. I know that many of you do. You rise early in the morning. You work long hours. You come home and you work more. And I want to tell you, I'm not talking just about labor or work today that is the work that you do when you punch a clock. I'm talking about us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating in our lives a biblical work ethic. Do you know that the Bible has much to say about work? We're going to do a topical study today on it. Before we do, I was thinking about the guy who thought, like many of us do, that he works a little bit harder than everybody else. He got his calculator out, and he was trying to imagine some numbers, and he was trying to figure out why he's so stinking tired all the time and feeling like he's the only one working. And so he figured out in his mind, and the numbers are skewed, of course, that the population of the country was over 200 million of those 200 million, he figured 84 million are retired. That leaves 116 million to do the work. There are 75 million in school, which leaves 41 million to do the work. And of this total, there are 22 million employed by the government. That's a joke. That leaves 19 million, 19 million to do the work. 4 million are in the armed forces, which leaves 15 million to do the work. And you take from the total the 14,800,000 people who work for state and city governments, and that leaves 200, that's another joke, and that leaves 200,000 to do the work. And there are 188,000 people in hospitals today, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. And of those, 11,998 people are in prison today, and that leaves just two people, and you're sitting there listening to me. You feel like that sometimes? You're the only person out there pulling your weight. Well, I want to encourage you today. In no way do I want to discourage you. I only want the Word of God to challenge us, to speak to our hearts. 
But I do want to call, especially our young people today, I have you on my heart, that you would respond to the Word of God and that you would think biblically in this crazy world. And yes, I'm going to call you to a high work ethic to lean into the harness and pull with all your might. Now, some of you might be worried right now. Maybe a wife thinking to herself, this is the last thing in the world my husband needs. He's already a workaholic. So we don't have time to deal with every part of this topic of work and a biblical understanding of labor. So you listen to the Spirit of God this morning as we study the Word of God that the Spirit of God can poke around in your heart because maybe there are some things you need to deal with. Uh, It occurs to me through my own counseling ministry and dealing with people through the years that often a workaholic is somebody who's not really driven so much by their work ethic as they are by the things, the other things in their world that they're trying to avoid. Maybe you need to deal with some of those things. You let the Spirit of God show you. But I do want us to think about why we need this message. We're going to just kind of cover quickly a couple of introductory matters. If you're looking at your notes, you see that I believe that one reason we need this message today is because of societal shift. We live in a changing culture. Societal shift. My grandfather's generation demonstrated to my father's generation who demonstrated to my generation and I'm demonstrating to my son's generation different things, particularly different things about how we approach work and the way we think about work. And it's really no fault to our young people and to younger generations, but wouldn't you admit with me that we've had societal shift in the area of our affluence and there has been what I'm going to call generational affluence. That is, that we have a lot more to leave and to give our children. Our children don't necessarily have to work as hard as we have to work in the previous generation. For sure, my grandfather's generation, my father's generation, and the stories he would tell me coming out of the Great Depression and so forth. And so we've become afflicted in our culture with what I call a comfort complex. A comfort complex, what's that? That is the idea that I am addicted to comfort. I don't want to work that hard, but I certainly want to be comfortable. In fact, I really deserve to be comfortable. I have my right to be comfortable. I want it, I want it now. I don't necessarily want to work for it. Give it to me. And so we've had societal shift, generational affluence. We have what I'm going to call this morning also in our society, and we're just scratching the surface, just bumping into it. It's not a sociological study here this morning. We want to get into the word, but I wanted to just lay a foundation. These are real problems that we're dealing with. Secondly, we have what I call directional uncertainty, and this is indeed a word particularly to our younger generation. We have young people who are growing up and they don't really know what to do with their lives. And so they're in their 20s and they're still eating out of their father's refrigerator. And so young people, let me challenge you. And it's not a put down, but I want to challenge you. When you become a graduate from high school about 17, 18, 19, you need to be starting to think. 
especially if you're a man. You need to be thinking about how are you going to support yourself? How can you contribute to the family? How do you give back to your family? How do you help provide? It is God's will ultimately that you leave your father and mother and you cleave unto your wife and you start a family. And I understand that there's a lot of dynamics here and I understand that many young people are seeking God's will and it is uncertain what they should do. But even in the middle of your uncertainty, you have to work. You have to produce. You have to help contribute. You have to be productive. And so we have some of these issues in our culture that are a little bit unique to our generation because of the affluence, because of the ease with which one generation has allowed another generation to grow up. Secondly, we also have political trends. We have political trends, and I'm not going to uh, talk, comment too much about this. Let me say, though, that it's on my heart that about a year from right now, as we enter the fall, if the Lord tarries, and we're entering the fall season for the 2020 election, I want to have about a six-week series next fall on, the, on a biblical understanding of government, and that we would have a right mindset understanding what we should really expect from our government, and what government ordained of God should look like and how we can pray for our government, and how our young people should be able to think appropriately and biblically about government. And we'll look forward to that next year. But don't you notice that there are political trends? One trend that I've been noticing of late is, in, is absolutely the socialization of everything. And in fact, Gallup took a poll and he found out that across the political spectrum, so not identifying with conservatives or liberals, but across the political spectrum, 51% of all young people aged 19 to 29 say they would favor a socialistic form of government in the United States. Well, I'm not sure they really understand socialism. By definition, socialism means that you can't own private property, but... That's not really what I think they mean. What I think they mean is they really think it's great if somebody will pay off their student loans, if they can get some free food, if things just go a little easier for my difficult life. And so there's a lot that could be said here and will not be said, but I think it influences our younger generation and we have to watch this. It is not biblical we also have a, a trend politically and, and socially of the demonization of wealth. I'll call it the demonization of wealth. The idea that if you produce, that if you have a job and you can make money and you can do better and you can grow and develop and produce and produce more and you can take your resources and you can multiply your resources, that somehow that's immoral. Somehow there is some kind of a... a a sacred thing to, to not having much. And that's really not biblical. That's not biblical at all. In fact, God expects us as we have opportunity to be stewards of our opportunity. And absolutely, it is shameful to waste the prime opportunities that we have to develop and to grow the resources that God has given us. That's act. Now, I understand that there are immoral ways of approaching wealth that there are disgusting ways that we can act in self-centered ways. That's not biblical. But it is not biblical to think in any way that there is somehow something wrong with wealth. Another whole topic. Closely related maybe to that mindset in our culture and in our political trend has to do with the preservation of the earth. The preservation of the earth. 
That is, we, we can't bulldoze, we can't cut trees, we can't mine, we can't drill, we can't tap. We can't seek the resources out of the earth. And that leads us right to our Bible as we ask ourselves, okay, what is a biblical understanding of labor? If all these things are going on in our world and these trends are hitting us and they actually undermine the very work ethic of our young people, how are we to think biblically? Let's go to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. We, um, I know we're the third service and I'll be very careful, but we do need to pay attention to the time and I think you'll be able to easily understand the points that we're making this morning, especially if you follow along with the notes so why do we need this message? Why a, why a message on labor on Labor Day weekend? Well, because I'm going to put Hebrews off one more week, and we're going to be in Hebrews 6 again starting next week, Lord willing, as we pick up Hebrews where we left it off last spring. But I thought it would be good for us. Labor on Labor Day weekend. Why? Because... There's been a societal shift and it's undermining our work ethic. Why? Because there are political trends and they are undermining a biblical work ethic. And why this message? Because we must understand that there are biblical teaching. I'm calling them biblical norms. There are foundational truths from God's word upon which we build our lives and we build our understanding of what God expects from us in this area of labor. The first is God's word himself from the book of Genesis, and it's foundational to our worldview. It's foundational to our worldview. It's a word straight from God to the very first man, Adam. We're in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick it up with verse 26, and you need to know that sin has not entered the world yet. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to encounter sin, and I want you to watch closely that God blesses man with the ability and the responsibility to work. It's not a result of the fall. Now, work became more complicated after the fall in Genesis 3, but man is privileged and even charged directly by God to work on this earth comes straight from God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, I'm using the ESV, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice there's a veiled reference to the Trinity there, the plurality of the Godhead, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First time we see that. And then he goes on to say, you're to have dominion over these animals, fish, birds, livestock, over all the earth, creeping things. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, as opposed to everything else that he's created to this point. Nothing else was created in the image of God, only man. That's why human life is sacred. That's different than strawberries and bananas and fish and goldfish and your puppy dog. They are not created. All other life, all other forms of life, plant, animal, vegetation, all kinds of life, that only human life is distinctly sacred because it's made in the image of God. Now look at the responsibility he gives. He does create them male and female, he says, so to fully express the image of God in us, it's male and female combined, and God, verse 28, blessed them. It's a good word, isn't it? And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's a mandate from God. Let me just say quickly, do not believe the headlines that the world is overpopulated. I've told you before, I've flown over much of the globe. It's vastly unpopulated. And that's another problem. Now, it's poorly managed in certain areas, for sure. But this is a mandate that is still good for today. Do not, young couples, not have children because you're worried about overpopulating the earth. That is not true. And in fact, to think biblically, you allow God to just show you how many children you should have. That's between you and the Lord. But don't not have children because of overpopulating or fear that somehow you're damaging the earth by having too many children. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And so God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then look at, here's our key words and we're going to have to pick it up. Our key word, he said, he tells them, subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the birds, the heavens, living things that move on the earth. In fact, God goes on to say, I give you everything. It's yours. Let's look at the notes. When we're understanding that foundational to our worldview is the biblical norm that God placed man in dominion over the earth, number one, this key word from 128, subdue, is a military term that means to conquer. The idea is, is that you are to rule over That's have dominion. It's also a military term that you rule over it. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, a contemporary theologian says, we should view the development and production of goods from the earth as something that is morally good, not morally as an evil kind of materialism. He goes on to say, God does in giving us this word that is foundational to our worldview of work ethic. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, And the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden, 2.15 of Genesis, and he put him in the garden, look what it says, to work it and to keep it. Listen, those are steward words. The NIV This idea to keep it is to guard. The NIV says that's to take care of. The idea to work it means to to oversee it as a steward. We humankind are responsible to work the earth. That is, here is a resource over which we are responsible. We are not to let it go to waste. We are to explore it. We are to use it. We are to develop it. God has granted tremendous resource, and that all takes work. I talked to a man whose son comes to our church last week at the pig roast for the men, and he was visiting his son, and he lives over by Kaiser, and he works for a coal company, and he said, man, he said, every morning when I go to work, I go 10 miles below the surface of the earth. He said, I have an office down there. He works for a coal mining company. I think that's pretty cool. And you know what? That's what it means to have dominion over the earth. Find the resources and figure out how to manage them. Now, it creates a tension, doesn't it? This idea of stewardship and dominion and oversight. So then somebody says, let's take a bulldozer. Let's bulldoze that mountain down into the valley. Let's pave it as a parking lot and put a Walmart there. And somebody else says, that's an abuse. That's an atrocity. That's immoral. That's unethical. Somebody else said, that's good stewardship. So now we have a tension. And I'm not saying it's an easy tension to resolve. We, as part of having dominion over the earth and being stewards of the earth, 
are to be driven to work hard to maximize the potential that God has given us in the earth. I mean, developing an airplane to fly has created a whole industry. That's part of having dominion over the earth. Okay, mining for gold and realizing what that metal can do and how many ways we use it is having dominion over the earth, and it creates jobs. And when you begin to say that the earth is sacred and we're to serve the earth, you, you undermine the very work ethic that God has commanded for us to, to go and steward the earth. And so we have everything backwards as though, as though we are to serve the earth. No, the earth is here to serve man. But that doesn't in any way Never do we have biblical permission to waste or abuse or destroy the earth's resources. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. However, the earth and its resources are to be explored, to be developed, and to be used to bring benefit to mankind. And that is fundamental to our work ethic, that God put us here to work the earth. Secondly, there's a biblical norm that we find in the wisdom literature of Solomon. So first of all, we see a word from God, God's word in Genesis, and it's foundational to our worldview. Secondly, let's look here this morning at a word from Solomon, Solomon's word in Proverbs, and it is confrontational with our flesh. We're going to go quickly now, so listen. Confrontational with our flesh. Now, some of you aren't used to church world, and you hear the flesh. What in the world is the pastor standing up in the pulpit talking about the flesh? We'll explain that in a minute, so you just stay with me. But let's split your Bible right down the middle and go to the book of Proverbs and find chapter 6, and let me just show you, and then I'm going to let you do the rest with your Bible study this week. I've given you some verses to look up. It's an easy way. When I was young, I used to want to study my Bible, and I didn't know how. I'm, I'm giving you a mechanism here. Put your sermon notes in your Bible and go home and look up every verse we don't look at together today. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. I looked up sluggard in the dictionary. I was a little disappointed that they defined the word with the word, but it means lazy-sluggish. I think sluggish means slow, sleepy, unproductive, lazy. Go to the ant, you sluggard, you lazy-sluggish one. Consider or observe her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the sluggard being unproductive. Where's your productivity? When are you going to move? Be productive. Look at an ant. It has no general, no overseer, and they're always busy about their work. Sluggard, learn from the ant. Get busy. Get productive. Produce. Do not lay around. The idea there is that there is a lack of discipline. And that is where it confronts our flesh. We don't enjoy discipline. Uh, Further, if we were to look up the other Proverbs, he's going to confront, number two, laziness. He's going to confront laziness and abuse of time, and they gave you several verses to look up, and he's going to also confront making excuses. All three of these are elements of the flesh. 
to be undisciplined, to be lazy, to make excuses, to avoid work. Those making excuses, Proverbs verses 22, 13, 26, 13, they're a little bit hard to understand. At first you read it and it says, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the streets. And you're reading it and it's like, what in the world is he talking about? There is a lion in the street? You kidding me? What's the point? The point is that a lazy sluggard will make up the most bizarre excuses to avoid work. I can't go out there. There's a lion in the streets. Come on, man. Get up and get with it. Stop thinking of all the reasons why you can't and figure out a way that you can. What does all this do? This confronts our flesh. Before we move on, let's take just a minute, flip your page now, and let's look at that text box on the bottom of the back page. And let me explain to you briefly what this idea of the flesh I'm talking about means. What are we talking about here? Well, if this is another homework assignment. Go to Galatians chapter 5, read these 10, 11 verses, 16 through 26. And there, three times, the Apostle Paul, in writing the Galatian believers, is going to confront them about the deeds of the flesh. He uses the word, the flesh. What's he talking about? When you read the passage, you'll see that he has a whole list of sinful deeds that spring out of the natural man just doing what natural people do. Remember I say, fish swim, birds fly, dogs bark, and sinners sin. It's natural. It's normal. That's because of the flesh, our sinful flesh. Adam's sin was imputed to us, given to us, and now we sin. And if we allow our flesh to dictate, we will do what? We will drink. And we will indulge ourselves in all kinds of pleasures. And we will hurt other people so that we can have superiority over other people. These are all desires of our flesh. So I wrote, almost off the top of my head, a definition as I think of the flesh. The flesh is, look at the text box, sinful behaviors, impulses and attitudes that are of the natural man without Christ. So somebody who's never been to the cross, they have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They have never admitted their sinfulness and their need for Jesus Christ to come make them into a new creation and to ask God to forgive them of their sin. Repent of their sin, accept God's free gift, let Jesus Christ substitute in their place and take the death penalty for their sin and give us his righteousness. We talked about this last week. And his righteousness is imputed to us. Before all that, and many of you could give testimonies right now, couldn't you, of all of the nasty, inappropriate, sinful things that spring out of the flesh because you have a BC story, you have a before Christ story. And you know that it takes you places you really didn't want to go, ultimately. So let's continue reading. The sinful behaviors, impulses, and attitudes that are of the natural man without Christ, the flesh in its unredeemed state is capable of any sin. So don't ever say, oh, I could never do that. Or you see uh, somebody interviewing at a, where there's an unsolved crime in a neighborhood and the news people are interviewing a neighbor and their neighbor has been accused of some horrible sin and they say, no, I, I, my neighbor couldn't, they wouldn't do that. They couldn't do, they're not capable of doing that. That is bad, bad theology. They are absolutely capable of doing that. And in our flesh, there dwells no good thing. And so in our natural unredeemed state, we are 
The, the Christian, though, is no longer under the rule of the flesh. We do not have to be dominated by the flesh. But yet, we are vulnerable to the behaviors and the impulses and attitudes that are motivated by what we might call the residuals of the flesh that will only be removed finally and fully at our glorification. So remember, when we accept Christ, we're justified. Declared righteous in the mind of God. That's when we come to the cross, washed by the blood of Christ. He declares me without sin. He imputes his righteousness to me. Now I'm growing in Christ. That's sanctification. And then one day I die and I'm in the presence of the Lord or he returns and takes me to himself. And that's glorification. And at the point of my glorification, my battle with the flesh is over. You see? And so what I'm talking about, Solomon's wisdom principles on the back side of that page, front side of that page, is that Solomon is interrupting and confronting our flesh with his wisdom principles. Do not be undisciplined. Do not be lazy. Do not make excuses. And I'm, I'm telling you the truth. There are many more concepts in Proverbs from Solomon about our work ethic. But let's hurry along and let's look at our third and our final main point underneath biblical norms, these biblical foundations. First of all, a word from God. God's word in Genesis is foundational to our worldview. Secondly, Solomon's word from Proverbs, it's confrontational with our flesh. Thirdly, a word from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's word in the epistles, it is instructional to our Christian living. It is instructional to our Christian living. Will you flip to the New Testament? This is topical, so we have to turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, right before 1 Timothy. 2 Thessalonians 3. This will not take long. I'm going to read through it and give you the key terms to fill in the blanks, and you'll capture the spirit of this passage easily. 2 Thessalonians 3 Beginning with verse 6, before I read, let me just tell you that it is possible, even probable, we don't know for sure, but it is likely that Paul, the Apostle Paul, in writing the Thessalonian church, is dealing with a problem that he heard about that could spring from their eschatology. The idea is they heard that the Lord is returning soon, and so they quit working. So why work? Why be productive if the Lord's coming back? If this world's not my home, man, why work? I'm going home. And it's going to happen soon, and they thought it was going to happen any time. And remember, in First Thessalonians, they thought that it had happened, and they missed it. That's how soon they thought it was going to be. And so they thought, maybe, no need to work. And when does the Apostle Paul come at them? Look what he does. Verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus. See what I mean? We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any stronger than that. That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. First of all, the beginning of verse 6, notice he begins with a, a command. I call that a regulation. He's giving them a regulation, number one. A regulation, 6a. This regulation is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they work and, number two, separation, separation, number two, verse six, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. That is in the church, an identifiable person who is unproductive, lazy, and a sluggard, and you're not supposed to fellowship with them. Woohoo! That's pretty serious, wouldn't you say? So let's go over to their house and have a barbecue. Nope, ain't going. How come you're not going? He's a lazy old dog. 
wow, and you're going to make that judgment? I'm just telling you that's what Paul says, all right? Paul says, I'm giving you a regulation, and it involves separation from those within the church. And not talking about outside the church. First Corinthians says you have to leave the world to get away from all the sinners outside the church. Let's read on. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that it might not be a burden to you, to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. In other words, he's saying, we came to you, we ministered in the gospel, we had a right to say, hey, feed me out of your refrigerator. Hey, let me stay at your place tonight. Support the gospel, support the missionaries, support the pastors. That's all biblical. But Paul says, third term, imitation. I gave you something to imitate. He says it twice in 7 through 9. I worked with my own hands. He was a tent maker day and night, preaching the gospel and working tents so that he could buy his own food and wouldn't be a burden to these poor believers that lived there. Verse 10 says, interestingly enough, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. He's not goofing around here, people. We give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. The next key word is starvation, number four. That'll get your attention. The apostle Paul says, you want to know how to deal with people who don't want to work? Starve them. And I would say that none of us have been very good at enforcing this one at all. All right, come eat. Tomorrow you get a job. I want to tell you, they'd get a job a lot faster. He said, get out of my kitchen, get out of my refrigerator, go sit on the back porch, we're eating supper. Well, I want to eat, I'm hungry, dad. I don't care, get off my porch. Go find some food. I love you, son, but you got to get a job, right? I mean, I'm not making this up. It's right there. You just got to read between the lines a little bit, right? He says a little starvation will motivate somebody to work. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That's reputation. Your reputation, he says, is disgraceful. Number 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. The NIV says, settle down and get to work to earn their own living. He ends with an exhortation, an exhortation, number 6, verse 12, that you settle down and get to work. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And that is a statement about our Christian lives. Our Christianity is to be defined by a work ethic. Listen, number one, if you are lazy and unproductive, change. You can change. You can learn how to work. Attack this negative character trait in your life with every fiber in your being. You want to remove this from your life. Young girls, do not marry a man who is lazy or a sluggard. It will bring nothing but grief to you the rest of your life. Young men, to be marriageable, be a hard worker, provide, dig in and work. Young women work too. Attack this negative character trait with all of your might. It is a matter of sin. James says to know what to do and if it's right to do it and you don't do it, it's sin. 
Not only is it a matter of sin, but it is a matter of stewardship. It's a matter of stewardship. There's a wonderful story in Matthew 25. Most of you know it well. And the master goes on a long journey and he left so many talents with the one and three and five. And these guys were, or whatever it was, one, two, and five, to develop and to grow and to produce. Mainly the point of the passage is you've got the gospel, do something with it and develop it. But it's a principle that applies. Our Lord Jesus is our master. He's gone on a long journey. And if ever there's a group of people that he has resourced, it's in this room right here. And when he comes back, what are we going to have to show of it? Are we going to say, uh, there was a lion in the street. I couldn't go to work that day. N- no. 1 Corinthians 10.31, up under number one, says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That will change everything about you. Number two, teach your children the rewards of hard work. Teach your children the rewards of hard work. You work hard, it pays off. And that's part of the political sociological trend that we have going the opposite direction that sometimes it pays off not to work. And that undermines the very work ethic of our young people. Shame on us. To do that, one thing you have to do, young people, is you have to limit or remove video games. That's all I'm going to say. Number two, embrace discomfort. You say, Pastor Van, I don't really know how. I want to teach. I want to teach hard work to my child, and I don't know how to do it. I don't have time to talk about it. You got to go to Pastor Everett's parenting class. He'll teach you. But one thing I know, if our children are going to work hard, we have to teach them to embrace discomfort. This is part of the, the creeping elegance of our culture and the the desire that is embedded in the flesh to not be uncomfortable so that if it's hot or it's hard or it's heavy, I don't want to do that. And, and I think, and my son's a good hard worker, but I'm going to use him as an illustration. I'll pay you five bucks, pal. He's likely to be watching in. In the old days when he was playing basketball all through high school, and he might have a Saturday morning practice, and I would say, Hey, buddy, we got to get our saws and go out and cut wood and stack wood. No, Dad, I can't. i got to go to basketball practice, and I would yield in, and I wish I could undo it, and I would say, no, sir, off the chair. Let's go. Cutting wood and stacking wood will make you jump higher when you get to practice. You see, it would say, it's too hard. It's too hard to cut wood and then go to practice. So? It's too hot out here. It's too hot. Big deal. Do you know your kids can work in 90-degree heat? It won't hurt them a bit. It's a whole pastor pan. No, that's not true at all. Drink water. Work hard. The sun shines. I know. I did it a lot. My dad did it a lot. His dad did it a lot. And our children don't do it a lot. It's just too hot to work today, boys and girls. It's just too heavy to pick up. Wait until we can get a machine in here. No. Work hard. You see, we warp our senses when we don't work hard. We have a distorted view of reality when we don't work hard. Groom your work ethic to be driven by the gospel. I'll get off my hobby horses. Groom your work, groom your work ethic to be driven by the gospel. What do I mean by this? This is worth more time and attention than we're going to get. Colossians chapter 3, you read it. And the idea is there that it is the Lord Christ I am serving 
Can I tell you that when you get up and go to work, that if you complain and you grumble and you are unproductive and lazy, you will have zero impact for Christ. That's really not true. You will have a negative end game result for Christ. Go complain about your work, complain about your boss, try to get out of work and be lazy and try to leave work early and come late and try to have a testimony for Christ and it will not happen. Shame on you. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. And people need to see Christ in us and they need to see the joy of hard work. Your testimony is at stake. Your ability to give is undermined. If you don't work, you don't have to give. Don't you love to give to the building program? To Center Point by Lowell needs us to give. And then all the needy people, our contribution to the needy. I'm thinking of Malawi and they're starving. You see, if we don't work, God can't use us. And ultimately, we don't lay up treasure in heaven. So we need to get to work, people. All for the glory of Christ, the testimony of his church, and the maximum productivity as stewards of the earth and the resources God has blessed us with. Would you say amen to that message? I think so too. Let's stand up. Lowell, come and close us, please. It's a joy to have you here. And I owe you three Chick-fil-A's lunches for sitting through three messages today. (laughs) And uh, you pray. Let's pray with Pastor Lowell as we go. It was better every time. Let's pray. Father, we've heard some great teaching today. We thank you for the grace of Jesus in our flesh.